I had to really put my ego in check because as a as a Royal Marine, you just love big challenges, you know, and big adversity in front of you. And you're used to making big leaps and, and growing quite fast. But I knew in this situation, I had to take baby steps and I had to celebrate the 1% wins. And I had to look at all those little things I was achieving on a day-to-day basis, right down to being able to brush my own teeth and shave my own face. Because in the beginning, I had doc, you know, nurses that would straddle me in my bed and shave me. So I had to just really focus on celebrating all those small wins and just build and build and build and build and build until what was difficult one week became easy the next week. And then, you know, it's up here and now it's down here and it's not an issue. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Mark Ormrod. Mark is a former Royal Marines Commando and Invictus Games medalist, author, and motivational speaker. After triggering an IED on a routine foot patrol in Afghanistan on Christmas Eve, Mark suffered serious injuries resulting in a triple amputation, both legs above the knee and his right arm above the elbow. He was the UK's first triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan conflict. Not one to resign himself to live life on the sidelines, Mark, with the help of an amazing team and mentors around him, used to set back as a springboard for growth and reinvention. He's since gone on to be an 11 times medalist at the Invictus Games, an international sporting event for wounded, injured, and sick servicemen and women, an author of an award-winning autobiography, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt, and a husband and father. And he's got far more that he wants to do and accomplish in this life. In this interview, we get into Mark's road to joining the Royal Marines, the day he stepped on the IED, his recovery and mindset during that process, how to handle setbacks, and his work with the charity Reorg. And so, without further ado, my interview with Mark Ormrod. Thanks for coming to the show, Mark. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for inviting me. So um, let's start this one off the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? So you can probably tell from my accent that I'm from England. And I grew up in the southwest of England uh, in a county called Devon in a little city called Plymouth. Uh, a little seaside town, if you like, um, born and raised here, still living here now. I was going to say educated here, but I didn't go to the world's best school, but got a basic education. Um, and yeah, you know, I've had plenty of chances over the years to, to leave this place. My, my wife comes from just outside of London, so we could have went up there. You know, I, I travel a lot when we're allowed um, with work and things. So you know, there's been plenty of opportunity, but it's home, you know, and I, I just like it down here. It's a slower pace of life. Yeah, that's great. Um, were you into sports and athletics as a kid? Absolutely not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was into cakes and cans of Coke when I was a kid. And this is good. How old are you? 26. Okay. So do you know what a Sega Mega Drive is? 
I know Sega. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So when I was a kid growing up, they had, they just released like the Sega Mega Drive, the Sega Master System, the Nintendo NES, all these original consoles. So I was big into all that and didn't really do a lot of exercise or sport at all. You know, we got made to do it at school, but I was rubbish, you know, at soccer, uh, rugby, basketball, you know, just terrible at all of that stuff. So never really got into to sport as such until I got a little bit older during my teens. Okay. Interesting. And like, what got you interested in sports later on? It was, so I was born in the eighties, born in 1983, raised in the nineties and was a big fan of Stallone, Bruce Willis, Van Damme, Schwarzenegger and all these guys. And I used to watch, they, when they had VHS cassettes, I'd watch these things like in my spare time over and over and over again. This is way before social media was even a thing. The internet was only just coming out. And um, I used to watch all these and I was, you know, look at them and I'd be like, that's what I want to be like when I be this big, muscular, athletic hero, but also, you know, the gentleman, the nice guy, the good guy. And, you know, I was quite, chubby like i said when i was a kid and there was one point where someone i went to school with made a comment about my weight and i never really it wasn't really a thing to me before do you know what i mean i didn't really see it and that comment affected me and so i went to our our school gym which back in the 90s was effectively a, a broom closet with a like a lap pole down a pec deck a treadmill and a bike in it and I started training and when I got into it, I thought, you know, I might have a go at these, you know, cause when I was growing up, Jean-Claude Van Damme was like the man I wanted to be. Okay. And I just thought, you know, this guy's so cool. I want to be like him. So I got involved in kickboxing. You know, I started learning, I learned how to do the splits. Just, I was just naturally flexible. I could do that almost instantly. Like the thing across the chairs, uh, kick high and, and do all the fancy stuff. And, I think because I found something that I was good at, you know, it's, it's very important that when you do that, you know, you stick with it because it, it comes easier, doesn't it? And you become passionate yeah. about it. And so I really got into that. You know, I got into, um, into full contact kickboxing when I was probably 13. And that literally outside of school was, was all I really did. I trained three, four times a week, started to compete at a, a local level at local tournaments and stuff. And yeah, just, just develop the passion for martial arts early on. Interesting. And so where, when does the military come into the picture? Like, when does that interest start? So it was towards the end of school. Okay. You know, I, when, when I started, again, back in the day, I think all you really had for reference when it came to fitness was like, you know, there was one or two magazines available that you would buy every month in the, in the, in the store. So I'd go out and read them and try and teach myself about what I was doing in, in a weight room, you know, and, and it, and it was good. You know, I started to educate myself and, and become more knowledgeable in that area. Then when you combined it with the, the cardio aspect of martial arts, I kind of lost that weight and, you know, really liked it. It was, it was a big part of my life and I wanted to continue that. So I was coming towards the end of school and I had a decision to make about, either continuing with further education or starting a career. And, and that, was, that was important to me because I knew I wanted a career rather than a job. I didn't want to go from job to job. I wanted something where I could start at the bottom and work my way up. 
and I think the influence of all these movies I watched when I was growing up, you know, Predator, Commando, Rambo, and all these things kind of pushed me down that, that military route. And I was about 15 and a half and I didn't have that long left at school. And I just thought to myself, you know what, this is what I can see myself doing. It's going to, mm-hmm. I didn't really know it back then, but I had quite a passion for personal development. So I wanted to do something that, that forced me to grow and pushed me. I didn't want a safe, cushy job or a career or a life. I wanted to think that was going to be challenging where I had to step up to the plate and deliver and make myself better holistically. And for me, the, the military was, was the obvious option. I got travel. I got that growth. I got, you know, a career, what I wanted. And I, I kind of knew from the beginning that I wanted to jump into the deep end. You know, like, like in all across the world, when you go in the military, there are easier options and there are harder options and it depends what you want to do. And over in the UK, the Royal Marines are the harder option. You know, there are countries elite apart from special forces. It's the, the longest and hardest training that you can do, I think in the world. And we are able to deploy anywhere in the Arctic, the jungle, the desert, the woodland, we can go in by the sky, the sea, by land. You know, it just appealed to me mm-hmm. as, um, you know, like an all-rounder. You know, I thought I could go anywhere, do anything, and just be like the ultimate kind of soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, it sounds like you really, I guess compared to a lot of people during that age, you really had a clear understanding of what you wanted to do for a career and why. I wasn't that. I, I was quite I lucky. That sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was. I think I was lucky because, you know, I'm at a stage now. Actually, I'm 37 now, and I'm out of the military. I would. I'd be in my 20th year now. But I'm at this stage now where I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next. So I, I know I was very lucky back then that it just kind of synced, and you know, I, I ran with it. Yeah. And what, what was your road like to joining? Um, joining the Royal, the Royal Marines? Like, did you go to college or university beforehand or? Um... No, straight out of school. I applied at 16, started at 17. And I was lucky in that I didn't get injured going through the training. And every two weeks, you basically get assessed to make sure that you, you make the grade. And I managed to pass every hurdle. So I made it through in one hit and was fully trained by the time I was 18. You know, I was, there, was a, there was a lot of hard work involved with a, a little bit of luck, I think. Were you one of the younger guys? I was the second. So when we started, there were 64 of us and I was the second youngest in the troop. By okay. the time we finished, there were 16 of us, you know, so quite a high dropout rate. And to be honest, for a 17 year old, it's baptism by fire. You get thrown in this new world with all these people that are older than you, that all seem more experienced than you that you look around and they all seem to know what they're doing and you haven't got a clue, you know, and you just really got to roll with it and figure it out as you go. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I tell everyone it was, it was horrible. I hated the first month or two of it. I hated it. Yeah. Do a good amount of guys quit the training? A huge amount. Yeah. Absolutely huge amount. Like I said, I think we started with 64 and out of those 64 originals, 16 of us made it to the end. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. that's through people getting injured. That's through people quitting. That's through people not making the grade. There's a whole load of reasons. 
this is why they don't make it but yeah the, the dropout rate is phenomenal yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's very kind of similar sort of attrition rate to the the navy seals that we have here in the u.s right yeah 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 absolutely yeah what was your job or a royal a role in the royal royal marines like did you have like a specialty like position and all of that yes i did yeah and this is this is one of the things that was beautiful about the royal marines compared to say the army so our main job is as an elite infantry regiment so we're trained to the highest level as soldiers to do that job but you can then specialize in all sorts of areas so you could be if you joined and perhaps had a passion for cooking you could be a chef but when you go to a war zone and you deploy you revert back to being a soldier whereas in the army if you go in and you want to be a chef you stay a chef and that's it you you rarely pick up your rifle again it's rare that you would go on the front line unless you're doing that chef in row so that was another thing that attracted me and when i when i finished my training um there are obviously gaps that need to be filled and there are people that you know are responsible for putting certain people in certain places to get the numbers up so me and a couple of lads got um we call it pinged which means selected to go through a, a specialist driving course where you would get a motorbike license car license truck license uh, coach anything with wheels basically you would get taught to drive it advanced driving defensive driving in the arctic it's just everywhere doing everything so i was trained uh, as that initially and then you know you do a little bit of that in the uk but then like so when you deploy you go back to doing soldiering which is what we all joined for and then you just do other various things throughout your career you can do what we call ad quals, additional qualifications and go out and, you know, bolster your CV, if you like, and your skill set. So there's, there's loads right. of opportunity, but yeah, I mean, the main thing is just being a soldier. Yeah. Where did you get deployed to? So I actually started my training February, 2001, finished in October, 2001. So four weeks after September 11th. So, oh, wow. Yeah, we knew before we'd even finished that we were going to be at the pointy end of the spear. And I was trained straight out of basic in January 2002 to deploy to Afghanistan. That didn't happen. Uh, Loads of us were were called back. I think it was more like a special forces reconnaissance type thing. But then early 2003, we all deployed to Iraq on Operation Telic 1. So I was 19 uh, deployed for the first time to Kuwait and then was involved in that initial push over the Kuwait Iraqi border into Iraq to take part in that initial invasion where I didn't personally, um, do this, but my friends went up to the palace, the oil fields. I stayed in a place called Umkazar in a naval base, what we took over. And yeah, that was at 19 years old. That was my first tour, my first deployment, which was, I don't, I never know how to describe this, but it was a little bit disappointing, you know, because you go through all this training and, you know, your, your, your ego is constantly stroked when you're going through the training, you told you the best of the best, no one can do this job better than you. You're trained to do this, that, and the other. And I didn't fire one round the whole three and a half months I was there. You know, I got a really good suntan, you know, I got Mm -hmm. to see a bit of these two, these two parts of the world but I never did what I thought I was there to do. 
Well, I mean, I did, but, you know, not the gnarlier side of it. So I came back right. and was, you know, a little bit deflated with it all, you know, and then settled back into normal military life. We went off to Norway, did some training, learned how to fight in the Arctic, uh, did a bit of boxing for the Marines. I boxed as a heavyweight. We sailed on a couple of exercises down. We went down to Virginia on a thing called Exercise Aurora in 2004. And then I deployed to, uh, we got, why were we going to Afghanistan in 2007? So early that year, we started the training. Uh, the training was very different to what we were doing for Iraq. It was a lot more involved, a lot more aggressive, uh, a lot more in detail. And then, yeah, September 2007, we deployed on Operation Herrick 7 out in Helmand province. Okay. Was, um, were the deployments and I guess overall serving in the Royal Marines at all like what you expected it would be? Yeah. I mean, like I said, that deployment to Iraq kind of deflated me a little bit, but I, I knew that was that there was more to the job than that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it did, it took, it took me around the world, you know, it yeah. took me to war zones where you had to, you know, take care of the bad guys. It took you to other places where you had to look after the good guys, you know, and, and provide aid and, and shelter and humanitarian relief and all that kind of stuff. I got to do sport. I got to build an incredible group of friends, you know, that, I, that had all shared the same hardships and the good times with it. And it was pretty much everything that I thought it was going to be. You know, I think my only regret, well, it's not a regret, but I, you know, I was a young lad and I messed around a lot in my first five years. You know, I got in a lot of trouble, was charged a couple of times, which is basically getting marched in front of the boss and told off. Um, hmm. So yeah, it, looking back now as an older man, I, I, I wish I had put a bit more planning into what I wanted to do in my career. I just kind of floated around for the first five years, having a really good time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was everything I think that I wanted it to be. Yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe fast forwarding a bit here, walk me through what happened the day that you stepped on the IED. Yeah. So we were, like I said, we deployed to Afghanistan on the 7th of September, 2007 and Christmas Eve that year we were out. I was second in command of an eight man patrol. We were out on the ground with another eight-man patrol, just uh, securing the perimeter around this place called Ford Operating Base Robinson that we were working out of. And we were finishing up for the day, and the group of men that I was with were on a, a high feature, on a high piece of ground. And we were tasked with giving the other group overwatch, which is basically a form of protection. So when they come into vulnerable areas, if, if any enemy come, we can help them out and make sure they don't get hurt. And the guy in charge had put his men where he needed them. The other half of the section I was in charge of put themselves where they needed to be. And once I was happy with everything, with, with where everyone was to make sure that we were defended and, and looked after, I went to walk over to the position that I selected for myself to take up a fire position to protect that other section of men. 
And as I knelt on the ground, I triggered an improvised explosive device, which um, tore off both my legs, eventually above the knee, and my dominant right arm above the elbow. Not the best Christmas I've ever had. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. That's unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, it, like to to me, it's remarkable that you didn't you didn't bleed out. Like how how were the like medics able to like keep you alive? I assume they may they had to like fly you immediately to the nearest hospital. Like like how did it, how, how did that happen? I can't tell you exactly because I don't know. My my assumption right. with the whole bleeding out thing is that maybe the heat of the blast cauterized the ends of my wounds to a degree. But where I was very lucky was that we were just outside of the base we were working at. So okay. the medic that was in there got to me very quickly. He was, you know, the, they, the explosion happened and they heard it. It was that we were that close. And then the guys got on the radio to confirm it. The medic got scrambled out to me very quickly. And when he got to me, he instantly put tourniquets on both my legs and my arm. He, you know, one of, one of the things they do with a casualty like myself to stop you just quitting and dying is they, they try to get you involved in your own evacuation. So okay. he asked me to do up the tourniquet on my arm. I, I, I tried, you know, I gave a, a, a bit of a feeble effort, but it just it kept him happy. And then they went to evacuate me, you know, so he stopped the bleeding with the tourniquets, pulled out this stretcher, which was... Um, it was not your traditional stretcher, you know, with the, the rigid bars and the handles. It was like, cause we we're in this big crater from the explosion. It was like a, a sheet with handles on. He hooked his hands under my armpits and dragged me onto the stretcher. And I wasn't in any pain until that point. And when he, when he dragged me, I felt a, a real sharp shooting pain in my right thigh. So I looked down and coming out of my thigh was like a, what I'd describe as a thin piece of red rope, real, real skinny piece of string, if you like. And uh, it was snaking across the ground and I, and I followed it and I looked and it went into my boot. Oh, and, right. So my, my foot, if you imagine from my knees down my shins, if this blast came sideways, completely ripped off my shins but this one foot was still intact in the boot, slightly attached. So he had to pick the boot up and cradle it on my stomach and then take me off this high feature down beneath us to where our vehicle was waiting. I got in the back of the vehicle. The guy driving, who was my sergeant major, nails the accelerator. And these aren't tarmac roads in Afghanistan. You know, they're just they're potholes everywhere. It's sandy and undulating. And we're climbing back up this incline to go into the front entrance of our fob where the helicopter was going to come and meet us to evacuate me. And as we're driving up the the Sergeant major driving, you know, he's got to go left and right and accelerate hard because the, the footing is very loose. And at one point when he was driving quite aggressively, the medic fell out the back. Now I went to follow after him when the driver swung around, reached his arm out just to try and grab anything he could to hold me in and ended up grabbing my femur bone. That was protruding out of my right thigh. Right. Now, 
he left the medic, which was fine because that other group of men that we were with, they were fully armed at the bottom of this hill. So he was safe and he was protected. And he drove me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I can remember is, is the helicopter landing and the tailgate dropping. And then I, I blacked out, which I later found out was the point where I, they classed me as dead. They said I was dead and they threw me in the back of a helicopter. Wow. Well, wow. so, so you remember, you remember a lot. Um, yeah. Of kind of that, all of that. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't expect that. Um, when, uh, so when, like, when was, like, how do they contact your family? Like, when was your family made aware of this? Like, did they tell your family that, like, you died and, and then you came back to life? Like, what was that all about? So I, I'll just quickly run you through the back of the helicopter. So there was another guy injured in the blast and he got shrapnel in his back and his upper arm. And the way they prioritize casualties in that situation is if you have a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you ignore the dead guy and you put all your attention on the guy that's dying because you don't want two dead guys. So when they, when they felt me for a pulse, they said I didn't have one. They couldn't get any intravenous lines into me because my veins had all collapsed because of the blood loss. And when they put an oxygen mask on, it should have steamed up to show I was breathing, but it didn't. So that's why they thought I was dead. So they shoved me in a corner. They get to work on the other guy. But then when a medic came past me to get some equipment to go and work back on the other guy, he saw my eye flutter, which meant that my heart was still beating. And he alerted some of the other medics. They came to get the work on me. And three days prior to this, they had just given the green light for this new technique to be used where if you can't get an intravenous line into somebody's veins you drill into their tibia and their fibia and you administer fluids that way problem being i didn't have any tibias or fibias because they've been ripped off by the ied so they decided and this had never been done before they just made it up on the spot and you've got to imagine how chaotic this environment is on the back of this helicopter but they just decided that they would drill into my hip and see if that worked. It, it failed the first time. Uh, they couldn't get the line to bite. Second time, it did bite. They got the fluids in me. And they said about three minutes later, I was awake again. Responsive, active, coherent, wow. answering questions. And I don't remember any of that. But then they got me back to a place called Camp Bastion. They took me to the field hospital. The surgeons had a look at me, you know, and I was a mess. And... Right there and then, they amputated both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. Put me on a plane and they flew me back home where I arrived at around about four o'clock in the morning, I think on Christmas Day. Okay. Now, I'm not sure the time differences, but I know that um, my family were made aware on Christmas Eve uh, of what had happened. They didn't know the full extent. You know, they were initially just told that I'd lost a foot which was, I imagine, devastating enough. And then my, my now wife, you know, her family are in Surrey, just outside London. Like I said at the beginning, we live in the southwest. It's a four and a half hour drive to London. So the two families, then Birmingham is in the Midlands. So it's in the middle of our country. So it's somewhere completely different, which is where the hospital was. They then jumped in cars at different parts of the country, met in Birmingham on Christmas Day when I arrived. And, uh, you know, I was in a coma for three days, a drug-induced coma, fighting off infections, um, you know, trying to deal with, I guess, 
it was probably way too painful to wake me up that early. But yeah, they, they met at the hospital and then we started the, the long road to recovery. Wow, that's, uh, that's crazy. Um, mm. So how long were you in the coma for? Three days. Okay. They started to gradually bring me out of it on, I think, the 28th of December. And I woke up for, I'm going to say, like 25 seconds. And mm-hmm. I just remember feeling exhausted and drained. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't speak. I, I was just kind of moving my mouth a little bit and mumbling through this oxygen mask, uh, choking on a feeding tube. I could just see the, like, the blurry lights on the hospital room ceiling. Woke up for a little bit. Actually, that, I, that was the moment I actually proposed to my girlfriend and asked her to marry me and then passed out, stone cold out. So did yeah. you, like, before you passed out, did you know if she said yes or not? Yeah. I, I could, okay. So I couldn't, I couldn't open my eyes, but I could hear everything okay. around me and everything was echoing, I think, because of the drugs and I could hear her. And so I kind of, I was trying to speak through this mask and she took it off and they, they ripped the feeding tube out because I was gagging on it. And I'd actually, while I was in Afghanistan, I'd written a letter to her dad. I was going old school, you know, and trying to be respectful and chivalrous. And uh, so I'd planned to do it anyway. And it was the first thing that popped into my head when I heard her voice. So I just asked her there and then. And she said, yeah. And then I passed out. I was out until they gradually the next day reduced the medication a bit more and brought me back into the world. Hmm. And uh, so did you know... Is that when you know that they had amputated um, or you realized that they amputated three of your limbs or did you know before then? No, it was very, it was strange, but it was brilliant at the same time. What I mean is I didn't really know what was going on, which was strange, but what was brilliant was the way they weaned me off the medication enabled me to accept it in a good amount of time it wasn't like a cold turkey right you're off your meds by the way you've lost three limbs right it was gradually a little bit at a day you know and first of all i thought i just lost my feet you know and some fingers on my right hand and then as the days went on and they took me off the meds and i stopped hallucinating so much i could see the extent of the injuries until i think maybe five days in i knew exactly what had happened okay um, and and the full extent of my injuries hmm and uh, I guess, what was your reaction to that? It wasn't uh, it wasn't that bad a reaction, to be honest. I, I think I'm lucky. I think there was a lot of luck involved because you're either going to go one or two ways when you wake up and you realize what's going on. You know, you're either going to crash massively and, you know, go into a negative headspace and focus on all the all the bad parts of your situation or you're going to kind of look at it as a matter of fact thing there's nothing you can do about and figure out what you're going to do moving forward with the rest of your life and i just kind of naturally went that way you know once i realized the extent of my injuries i'm like okay now we know these are the facts what are we going to do about it you know and then i got taken out of that intensive care ward I got moved upstairs in the hospital for another five weeks to something called the Barnes and Plastics Ward. And that was when I was really brought out of this drug-induced haze where I could figure out what I was going to do moving forward in my life. Right. And doing some 
uh, research um, to talk to you. I think I remember reading that the doctors told you that you'd never, never be able to walk again. You'd probably be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. What was that conversation like? And um, I guess, like, what was your reaction to that? What was your reaction to that? So you've got to imagine, right? This is three and a half weeks into my recovery. So a month ago, I was six foot two. I was, I, I don't know what the conversion is into pounds, but 16 stone, like 220 maybe. I was a martial artist. I was a Royal Marines commando. I was out there doing my job. I was in, in my mind at, at the peak of, of what everything I thought an alpha male should be. <laughs> and now I'm lying in a hospital bed, you know, four foot three without my prosthetics. You know, I only had, if you can see the scar on my hand there, I had a huge hole yeah. in the middle of my hand from shrapnel. So I only had two fingers to do anything with to pull myself about in my bed. And three and a half weeks into this recovery, this doctor knocked on my door that I didn't recognize. Uh, he came in and introduced himself and he was the UK's leading professional in the field of amputations. So at that time, I think it was January, 2008, he had been in that field for 33 years. So he was the, the font of all knowledge, the guru when it came to amputations. So what he said in my mind was fact. And he came in and he said, quite matter of factly, you're going to have to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair because of the extent of your injuries. And in my 33 plus years, I've never met anybody who's only got one leg missing above the knee that has success using prosthetics full time because it's too painful. They're too awkward and difficult to use. And they take anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to use than an able-bodied person. And then he walked out and that hit me hard. You know, I had a great team around me at that point, a great team of, of Royal Marines from the welfare department, the doctors, nurses, physios, my friends, family, you know, someone on this, the positivity train until this guy comes in and then just derails it, you know, and, and that knocked me down like real bad. And I got very angry and I turned my phone off and I was telling visitors to do one. Um, I didn't want anyone around me and I just needed space to process this, you know, cause it, it, it then felt like everything was taken away from me, the martial arts, my career, my fitness, which was massive to me. Um, so yeah, I just needed time to process it and, and try and figure out what I was going to do from that point on as a, as a, what I thought was going to be a wheelchair user for the rest of my life. Right. Right. In total. So how long were you in the hospital for? Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. A week in intensive care and five weeks of doing physiotherapy from my bed, uh, upstairs. Mm-hmm. And do you leave the hospital with um, being in a wheelchair or do you leave with some prosthetics? We left in a wheelchair to head to the rehabilitation center, which bizarrely was two junctions away from where my in-laws lived in London. Um, so it was right around the corner from the house. And I'd, I'd never really oh. been to that part of the country before. And now I was just spending all my time in it. And we went around there and that was where I was eventually to be given prosthetics. I still had a lot of healing to do. I got a big chunk of flesh missing out of my left thigh and, and my back and my arm was still, you, know, you can see all under there. It was all heavily damaged. And so I, it was frustrating because I was keen 
to get on. I knew prosthetics were a thing. I'd met a guy actually who visited me in hospital who used them. Uh, he had injuries similar to mine, but he had both his arms. So I was keen to get on and, and use them, but I had to be very careful that I didn't push too hard and then open up these wounds that hadn't healed and then have to have more surgeries and, and delay my progress. So we got there and focused a lot on strengthening my core, my glutes, my hips, my back, and all these new muscles that I was going to have to use now in preparation for walking. Um, but it was a great environment. You know, I was Monday to Friday, nine to five rehabbing around other people with similar injuries, you know, from different branches of the military. So I couldn't have asked for a better place to be to rebuild my life. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I read on your website that you were able to turn I don't know, this whole setback into a springboard for growth and reinvention. Mm-hmm. I guess, how, how were you able to do that? Like, was it easy? Um, and did it take a while for you to see this setback in a different light? Absolutely. Um, so I, what I didn't say was I was the, the UK's first triple amputee from Afghanistan. The guy that visited me in hospital had lost both his legs in Iraq, but like I said, he had both his arms. Um, and no one in the rehab system had ever dealt with anybody with my level of injuries because unfortunately that there were people injured similar to me, but unfortunately uh, they, they, they never made it home. So we had to literally figure it all out as we went. You know, that, that we had a baseline from other amputees, but not, it was like taking all the amputees that had been in before and putting them all into one person with all these difficulties and injuries and problems. So it definitely wasn't easy. It, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But I kind of took a mindset of, you know, we've, we've torn the building down, right? We've got a strong foundation, which was my mindset. We need to rebuild now. And I had to really put my ego in check because as a, as a Royal Marine, you just love big challenges, you know, and big adversity in front of you. And you're used to making big leaps and, and growing quite fast. But I knew in this situation, I had to take baby steps and I had to celebrate the 1% wins. And I had to look at all those little things I was achieving on a day-to-day basis, right down to being able to brush my own teeth and shave my own face. Because in the beginning, I had doc, you know, nurses that would straddle me in my bed and shave me. So I had to just really focus on celebrating all those small wins and just build and build and build and build and build until what was difficult one week became easy the next week. And then, you know, it's up here and now it's down here and it's not an issue. And so, yeah, I just, it was just about flipping my mindset, you know, changing parts of my life. I had to flip my whole diet around because of uh, the way I have to live now. Um, You know, cut things out like, you know, young military people like to party. I had to kind of squash all of that because it wasn't conducive to my rehabilitation. It didn't add anything to my life. So I ditched it. And yeah, with a great team around me uh, and great support, we managed to to figure it out eventually. What were some of the diet changes they had to make? So I used to eat everything. And I don't mean like everything in front of me, but just anything is just get the calories in, lift weights, big, go on big, what we call yomps, which is when you put all your kit on and you just walk for days. You know, I just eat, 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 eat and eat, which is why I was so big. 
But when you're an amputee, when you're a bilateral above the amputee, because it takes you 300 to 500% more energy to walk around, you can't be a, a big top heavy lump. You have to kind of lean up. So I had to adjust all my macros, you know, edge out the junk food, you know, and moderate it, eat healthier, drink more water. Cause you know, you just, it's like, it was like swimming in the beginning in that when you swim, you don't understand that you're sweating in, in, or how much energy you're using because you're in a pool and it's not the same as being on a treadmill. And it was the same with walking. You are just using all this energy, burning all these calories, you know, burning through your, your internal water reserves. You've got to keep topping it up. And so I had to make all these changes and basically live like an athlete just to live every day really because that was i knew that was the key to my success and when i looked around you know and everyone is different and they make their own choices but when i saw the people that were smoking and were having takeaways every night and they were going out partying and and putting weight on because you're in a wheelchair and you can't exercise as much and i saw that they weren't making much progress you know it just kind of confirmed to me that i was on the right track you know, and I had to change my life holistically now and live a lot cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. And were there any pivotal moments like, um, during your recovery process that you can point to that like really helped in terms of you, like regaining more energy, positivity and purpose in life? I'll tell you exactly what it was. The biggest thing that changed my life completely and, and took me to where I am today was when I found a mentor. So there was a guy uh, in America, um, Cameron Clapp, his name is. I think he lives in between LA and Hawaii. But okay. in, t- in 2002, Cameron was hit by a train when he was 15. He received injuries very similar to me, both his legs above the knee, his right arm through his shoulder nearly. And he was just dominating prosthetics. You know, he was walking around, all day. I was watching these videos of this guy. And he would just walk around. I had crutches. I had carers. I had wheelchairs. I had adaptions in my car. I would go to disabled friendly hotels and stuff. And this guy was out surfing still. He was driving. (laughs) He was traveling on his own. And I saw him quite early on in my recovery. And I'm like, I need to do what this guy does. So I reached out to him. The short version of this story is I met him and his team online. You know, like we're doing now. They kind of helped me and mentored me. And then on the 9th of June, 2009, I flew out to Oklahoma City. I met Cameron. I met his team. And they basically, are you allowed to cuss on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. They whipped my ass like for three weeks. They took what I was doing in the UK and they intensified it to a level that I had not been exposed to before. I wasn't allowed to take a wheelchair with me. I had to go out on my own. No carers, no people running around doing stuff for me. And I went out there and they just hammered me but what they did they took like seven years of cameron's successes and failures and we diluted it down into three weeks you know everything they'd learned about what you can actually achieve as a triple amputee that people said wasn't possible cameron had done it he had proved everybody wrong and it just opened the floodgates for people like me to come in and replicate what they did in the systems and just enjoy living life again so that the 9th of June, 2009 was the day my life changed like massively for the better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What were some of the key like teachings or, or lessons that um, like, were really, really helpful that um, Cameron and his team shared? For me, first of all, 
it's the just the proof you know when people are telling me this isn't possible that isn't possible and i'm sat there watching a guy exactly the same as me pretty much doing what they say you can't do for example you know a bilateral above knee amputee cannot walk downstairs foot over foot without a handrail yes they can because Cameron figured it out and then after him other people replicated what he did. I mean, it's not like you do it easy and it's not every time. It's almost like a, a BMXer learning a new trick, but you can do it. You know, a bilateral amputee uh, above the amputee can't drive, can't travel on their own, can't live without a wheelchair. I haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of June, 2009. They told me that I couldn't go a day without using one, but I saw this guy just out there doing it all. And his team, you know, his team would challenge everything that people told you you couldn't do. You know, your legs need to be programmed through a laptop, through software, because of the, the Bluetooth technology and everything in my prosthetics. And there are manufacturer guidelines, what you're supposed to stick to. But everyone's individual. You know, me and Cameron have similar injuries, but they're not the same at all. So the way his legs are set up will be completely different to mine. But before they played with it, nobody wanted to go outside the textbook parameters. And because they did go outside them, you can live a lot more of an independent life. So just seeing right. things that were possible that people were telling me weren't just changed my mindset completely for the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So obviously, you know, your experience was incredibly, you know, traumatic, but as you, as you were mentioning, um, you were able to kind of accelerate out of this and, you know, create this whole new meaning and purpose in life and drive and mindset. How do you think others can, accelerate out of these out of huge setbacks or traumatic experiences and um, not get crushed by them there, there's a, a bunch of things you got to do the first and foremost which i think is the easiest and the quickest to implement is to get yourself around good people right so you've got a, you know the, the team i had in hospital were phenomenal i had other royal marines around me i had military doctors military nurses not that that's the be all and end all, but my point is they, they understood me because they were military and they understood that I wanted to push the boundaries and test things and they encouraged it. They didn't just say, no, you're not going to do that and just keep beating me down when I was already beaten. So I think anyone that goes through trauma needs to get around good people, people that are going to empower them and lift them up. And then if possible, take that to the next level and get mentors. Just find someone who's been there, seen it, done it and got the t-shirt and ask them for help. Say, look, I love what you're doing. I want to be able to do it. Can you teach me? And like I said earlier, you can take years and years and years of someone else's successes and failures and distill them down into a couple of weeks if, if you do it intensely enough. So that was a game changer for me. You know, mm -hmm. and then goal setting. You have to set goals because back before I met Cameron and when everything was really, really hard, I didn't want to get out of bed. Like, You've got to imagine my groin is cut and bleeding. There's blisters on the ends of my legs. They're still tender and sore. I'm just, I'm sweating through four or five t-shirts a day. My back feels like it's going to snap because of my alignments change because of prosthetics. And you just, you just, every morning you just like, you just say to yourself, I don't, I don't want to get out of bed today. But when you've got goals and something to strive towards, it kicks you up the ass. And then you're like, okay, I have to because I've got to accomplish this today. It's part of my plan. This is how I'm going to get better. And I adopted a mentality of, you know, just 1%, 1% a day. 
even if I got in the parallel bars in the early days and could take one extra step to what I did the day before, that's progress. And, you know, progress beats perfection every day. So, you know, get around good people, get mentors and set goals. Those are the three things I would absolutely advocate in the beginning. Yeah. And maybe, um, what's your perspective on, um, on that first, I guess, pillar of having good people around you, around people who also hold you accountable and challenge you to keep progressing or like call you on your bullshit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Those people, accountability pretty... partner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to have gone through trauma to, to need one of those. I'm just putting the finishing touches on a seven day, uh, peak performance package actually that I'm putting together. And that's one of the things I'll write in it, you know, commit to it, say it out loud. If you haven't got anyone, put it on your Facebook, you know, and then get people to call you on your bullshit and hold you accountable to doing what you said you were going to do. Because, you know, some people are wired in a way where they don't need that, but I think most people do. And they need, and it's a lot more fun if you've got someone along the journey, along for the journey with you, you know, it's a really powerful thing actually to have somebody along with you for the ride. Right. Right. Um, and so you, you go through all this recovery process. What was the transition like for you going back into civilian life? Um, like what, how would you do to keep busy initially and all that? Cause regardless of whether or not you have a, you know, traumatic injury like you did. Um, a lot of veterans, as you know, struggle with that transition to civilian life. I always feel a bit of a fraud when people ask me about this because I was so lucky. So I had planned, I had people that were, that were serving in the military still ask me to do a fundraising event to raise money for military charities. Is actually that red jersey you see behind me? Yep. So we ran from New York to LA, 3,563 miles on, I had wow. prosthetics and then I had five other team members. We, it took us 63 days of, of leapfrogging across. So that was, as I was leaving, that was my main focus. But a month before I did leave, I had a, a phone call off a retired Royal Marines brigadier. And he was the chief executive of what is now the Royal Marines charity. And he rang me up and he introduced himself and he said, would you like a job? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. What do you want me to do? He said, but don't know. we'll figure it out. And I think because I was injured so early on and was the, you know, the first triple amputee and, and certainly one of the first, uh, what we call VSIs, very seriously injured, that was their way of reaching out and looking after me. You know, unfortunately after that, you know, countless guys were getting hit and injured and they couldn't offer everybody a job. But I fell straight into this job, which involved fundraising. It involved looking after other injured guys and their families. It involved raising the awareness of the charity. And I, I did that for 10 years. I actually just left it January this year to go oh, wow. do other things. Yeah, I've been doing it for the last 10 years. It's, it's grown massively and evolved. And I'm really proud to be part of it. But my journey is taking me to a, a stage now where I need to do my own thing. Like I just mentioned, like, you know, coaching programs, books, right. um, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. Um, and you also wrote a book during this time too, right? I wrote a book when I was in rehab, um, in, rehab in the okay. evenings when, when all the guys with two arms could play the Playstations and the Xboxes. I couldn't do that. So I spent my evenings with a ghostwriter writing the, my first book. I've just had a call this morning with my, my other ghostwriter um, as we're shopping out the second book now to publishers, but everything's gone really slow because of COVID. And probably about 12 months ago, just before 
COVID started, I signed a movie contract to turn my story into a, into a movie. So, oh, congrats! I'm hoping. Oh, thank you. I'm hoping we can kick that off soon, um, get that project underway. And now that I am, I don't like to say unemployed, but now that I no longer have a day job, I have a lot more time. So I'm just going to dive into that project. I'm on there as an assistant producer, director. So I'm going to dive into that and uh, put all my energy there. That's awesome. Is that going to be like a um, like a documentary or is it going to be like more of a, like a, I don't know, movie, like feature film, all that? Yeah. We, I mean, we've done the documentary that's on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's called No Limits. But this is going to be a, a feature movie, a Hollywood movie, hopefully. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited to get started. Yeah, yeah that's great. What was um, for the first book, um, Man Down? Like, what was your, what was the process like writing that, and like, what are your biggest takeaways from writing that book? It, you know, it was, it was a difficult process in the fact that. You know, it was 2009. It wasn't really a thing that people did. You know, military people didn't really write books, especially while they were still serving. It was kind of a thing that you might do when you left if you had a, an interesting story to tell. And so I had to really, you know, I didn't think I did have an interesting story to tell. And I was only 24. And I wasn't like a special forces legend who had been in for 40 years and done this, you know. So it was hard to get my head around that. But I did eventually. And... It, it was an easy process, but not as easy as I thought. You know, after 10 months, I was kind of like done with it. And I never actually read the book until this time last year in, in the sequential order. Cause he, okay. he never wrote it that way. I just, I was so burnt out with it when we'd done it that I just released it, put it on a shelf and never touched it. But, um, I read it about 12 months ago now when lockdown first started, um, which led me on to doing the second one. So yeah, and I've already started the third one, but more of a that's more of a personal development kind of book. Okay, awesome. So let's uh, shift gears here here a little and, and get into Reorg. So uh, what is Reorg for people who don't know, and when did you become involved in it? Reorg is a, a new military charity. Um, for anyone that doesn't know what Reorg means, I always try to explain this. But if you imagine you're a a section or a company or a troop, whatever it is, a men, and you're assaulting a position, you obviously have a plan of what you want to do. But we have a saying in, in the UK military, no plan survives contact with the enemy. It always goes to shit. So once you've maybe assaulted a position and you need to move on to the next objective, what you'll do is you'll reorg, which means you'll come together and you'll effectively reorganize. You'll count your ammunition, make sure no one's got any injuries, shake yourself out and then get ready to push on. So it's kind of a metaphor for when you leave the military and it's all gone to shit, you reorg, you come back together. You know what I mean? And you support each other before you move on to the next phase. And initially that was done through the vehicle of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I was approached, the founder is a guy called uh, Color Sergeant Sam Sheriff, who was a physical training instructor in the Royal Marines. He's just about to leave actually. He's done his 22 years. He approached me in the sergeant's mess and asked me if I wanted to train jiu-jitsu with him now i had been approached by martial artists before who had said they could get me to a black belt in certain disciplines i knew from my background that it wasn't a possibility because i can't kick and i can't do kata or any of that stuff 
Right. And I had done jujitsu before when I was younger, but I had done traditional Japanese jujitsu. And so I thought this guy, it was just another guy approaching me with empty promises, but I decided to give it a go because he was a fellow Marine. I would go down and see what we could do. I had no idea what Brazilian jujitsu was. And I went down and I think from the first day, I was like, what is this? We're just rolling around on the ground, beating the shit out of each other. This is awesome. <laughs> and, and I loved it. And I, I realized quite quickly that it's so adaptive that this wasn't going to be a thing that where I was going to get people feel sorry for me or show me pity to, to advance through the rank structure. You know, I'd actually have to work hard and learn it and adapt it and do this stuff. And I, and I did, you know, I'm a, I'm a blue belt now. Reorg is just, is global already. It is about to get even bigger because its founder, uh, Sam, is leaving the military now to focus full time on this. Okay. Um, and it's, it's had such positive results. We've gone from initially just, you, uh, just working with the Royal Marines to working with all the military, the fire service, the ambulance service, the police service. We're in Australia, America, the UK, Brazil, everywhere, everywhere you can think of. Um, people are becoming affiliates of Reorg because they understand the physical and mental benefits of it. And it's the closest thing that I've found since leaving the military to being in the military, the camaraderie, the friendship, the, the social aspect, the community, you know, it's, it's very similar. Um, it's just phenomenal. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. There are tons of veterans at the school I train at. And they all they all say it's it's more because of the the camaraderie that it is. Um, they love the jujitsu too, but it's more of the camaraderie is why they they say there's so many veterans who do jujitsu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you you don't do you train with prosthetics on or no when you do jujitsu? No, um, that that was one of the things I had to figure out. I figured it out quite quickly uh, because my so my prosthetics because I'm an above the knee amputee. They come up to my groin so if i lie on my side or do any sort of quick movements then it's uh it's it's uncomfortable on my sensitive areas if you understand what i'm saying yeah, yeah. <laughs> things get crushed so and it's not very comfortable for other people either to get smashed around with metal and plastic and carbon so right. i do it without them on um which i can move a lot freer doing it that way um and what's been brilliant is, you know, things like what's left of my arm. I can use it to choke people out. I can use my legs to make, you know, things very uncomfortable. When you're putting your, the sharp parts of your body into the soft part of their body, I can still do that with my missing limbs and make it very uncomfortable for people. And for me personally, it opened my eyes outside of the dojo to what I can do with the, these limbs now. Whereas everything before I would do a one hand. Now I, I use my shoulder, my ear, um, just other parts of my body that just were dormant before. I'm now using them for other things outside of training. So it's really had a, a positive effect holistically in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a quote on the Reorg website that reads, uh, give yourself permission to perform. Mm -hmm. what's the meaning behind that quote and why is it significant to reorg i think it's just a little bit about you know when, when you go from where i was at to you know like i said raw marine martial artist and all this and you think that you're at, at the peak of of being a man and that all gets taken away from you 
you know, a lot of people will question themselves and doubt themselves. Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, have I got what it takes? And, you know, sometimes you need to give yourself permission to perform, you know, and go out there and just give this stuff a go. And then you realize actually, you know, it's slightly adapted, maybe a little bit slower. It's definitely different, but I can still perform and do these things based on hard work, grit, discipline, determination, and effort. Yeah. That's awesome. What do you enjoy most about jujitsu? Mm-hmm. I think the same as everyone. When you get those little micro wins, when you do one little tiny thing right and you see the massive impact it has, like maybe a certain turn of the wrist or, you know, positioning yourself one way or remembering at one point where you're always getting caught out, just remembering to, to drop your center of gravity in your, in your hips and just pin your opponent to the floor where he can't get you like he got you the last 54 times <laughs> you know and i just love how adaptive it is you know there's a lot of stuff i can't do you know i watch videos on youtube you know people in like spider guard and stuff and i'm like right i can't do any of that stuff right but i what from the from the very beginning you know i, I wanted to revolve my game around doing the basics well keeping it basic so i'm never going to be jumping, doing flying triangles on people. But I can, you know, always remember my down pressure. Always remember, keep the gaps small when I'm attacking, open them up. But, you know, just all the basics, just master the basics and do them well. Yeah. Yeah. And that applies to everyone too. Mm. Do you have like an ultimate goal in jiu-jitsu? I had set some goals because I found out uh, maybe two years ago about the para jiu-jitsu championships in Abu Dhabi. Oh, interesting. Right. And it was, it was, I think it's maybe four years old now. And I, and I follow these guys on Instagram. So I see the kind of people competing and I considered that, but then COVID came and, and everything. Um, and it kind of made it difficult, but I, I would, I would like to compete. And I think eventually I just want to keep training until I earn a black belt. You know, and, and that would be the ultimate goal. Awesome. Um, so getting these last handful of questions here, as mm-hmm. a motiv- motivational speaker and coach yourself, how are you um, able to maintain a positive, motivated mindset day in and day out? And he- Here's the thing about it, right? And I'm always honest about this, right? You, you can't. You can, but I think a lot of people think, that someone like me finds it easy and you don't, you know, you have to develop strategies and techniques and and tools to use them, uh, to be able to do that. And for me, you know, goal setting is key. Structure is key planning, you know, so I like to have a a set routine, plan my days around my goals and, and the things I want to achieve and accomplish. And that's huge for me. Exercise is huge. And just, just living holistically healthy and, and a positive life, I just find massively beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and here's a goal-related question. Um, let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to mm-hmm. be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. So here's the thing. And... I don't know why I find it uncomfortable to talk about. I don't know if it's a, a UK thing or it's a personal thing, but you know, when it comes to, to money and business in the last 10 years, I've done 
all the things I want to do in terms of competing at the Invictus Games, you know, writing the books, working for the charity, raising money, doing events like these, raising my family. And now I really, this year I'm really focused on business um, and being successful in that world because I want to show people that even though I've only got one hand, we're, we're very lucky we live in a day and age that we do where we can run a business from a smartphone. And all the information's out there. You know, sometimes it's overwhelming how much information's out there. But you, I, I believe everyone, if they want to, and, and they do it the right way, can run their own business online, you know, offline. You know, I'm into property, speaking, coaching. You know, that's one way that I do it. But I just want to reach this big level of success in business and finance, if you like, to be able to show other people that it's possible. Mm-hmm. that's awesome what is what's your daily routine like what are some of the things that you do every day to make sure that you're performing optimally a regular daily routine is so the alarm clock goes up at half past five every day i'm not quite jocko or david goggins yet i'm not getting up at <laughs> half past four but i get up at half past five um straight away meditate uh, minimum of 10 minutes and then i usually hit the gym you know, when the gyms are open, I'll be down there before the, the door opens. I plan my days the night before. Um, so I know what I'm doing, where I need to be. It's scheduled in the diary, so it, it can't be interrupted. Uh, and then just attack it. Just go for it. There's a, there's a lot. It's all to do with planning, I think. And that's how I, yeah. I personally perform at my best because it's in there. It's scheduled. I know what I'm doing for the week. I know what I'm doing for the day. I've got up in the morning, I've worked my mind, worked my body, and I'm good to go. Yeah. Do you try to get to bed early too? Generally, I don't go any later than half past 10. Mm-hmm. But you know, another thing I do is, is around sleep hygiene. So I have blackout blinds in my room. I, I believe it's all about quality rather than quantity. So blackout blinds, I've got little bits of tape overall like the tv where the red buttons are the lights and everything that's all blacked out um you know loads loads of little things you know a routine at night uh stretching don't eat after eight o'clock all that kind of stuff and uh try i try and i'll admit that i don't always succeed but try not to have any social media after eight and any blue light that kind of stuff that keeps that messes with your circadian rhythm so just having a routine good quality sleep and then i find you know six seven hours is enough yeah so as is the name of the podcast the driving force podcast what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life for me it's the constant journey to become what i call the ultimate version of myself and the beauty of it is you'll never do it you'll never reach it but you always are striving for it so i'm always trying to be physically fitter, faster, stronger, mentally, physically uh, faster, stronger, to eat better, to rest better, to stretch better, to be a better walker and a prosthetic user, to be a better dad, a husband, father, friend, employee, whatever it is, I'm always trying to be better and practicing. I think maybe in Japan, they call it Kaizen, constant and never ending improvement. Mm -hmm. That's what it is for me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the driver is, 1% 1% gains every day being 1% better than I was yesterday. I love it. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice around, you know, just staying driven and committed. Would you like to leave the people listening? It's, it might sound corny, 
but do what you're passionate about because that's going to keep you driven. If you've got that strong why, the reason why you're doing something, that'll get you through the dark times and, and the hard times. And like I said just now, in this day and age, you can do whatever it is you're passionate about and earn an income from it. You know, if you love jam, you can make a YouTube jam channel and you can make a killing doing that kind of stuff <laughs> if you're that passionate about it. So just do what you're passionate about and work on it every day. Awesome. It's a great place to end. Mark, thanks again for coming on the show. This was great. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. Where can people go to find you online? Everywhere. Instagram, <laughs> Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Clubhouse, yeah, markwomrod.com, the website. I'm everywhere. I'm easy to find and all my handles are just at markwomrod. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, traceroza.com and follow me on Instagram at traceroza4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.